Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoon. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I am back. Another awesome episode. It's Nicole DeBoom. This is my podcast, Run This World with Nicole DeBoom. Thank you for listening. For some of you, for listening to every single episode I have ever done, you are absolutely amazing. You deserve something. I'm not sure, but maybe just a huge hug from me. And someday I might be able to do that again because. Tim and I spent Easter morning at 8.45 getting our vaccines. So vaccines have become kind of like the next hot topic. You know, we're always living in unprecedented times. There's always something new happening in our world. I mean, that is evolution, you know, things change. Uh, It just so happens that we're living in extremely unprecedented times where big things are happening to everyone at the same time. And uh, I think that's pretty unique. And what we're living through with this pandemic may never happen again, at least we hope. And if it does, then we're learning a lot of lessons, right? So when the idea of a vaccine was presented that would give you some, or at least hopefully a high level of immunity to getting actually very sick doesn't mean you can't carry this virus, but hopefully you won't get extremely sick and, um, and potentially die like many, many people have. It became kind of a hot political topic. And, you know, I had to think through what that meant for me and my family. And the first thing I thought was, well, my parents better get it because they're at high risk and Tim and I are not at very high risk and kids apparently are at very low risk for getting very sick. Um, So my parents got their shots. They got their second shots. They are good to go. And I know for them, it has opened up a little more freedom again and is helping them move away from some of the doldrums they've been facing and the and the depression that's been wanting to rear its head in their lives. So when people 50 and over could get the vaccine, um, I looked at Tim and I was like, dude, you're 50. <laughs> Go get the vaccine. I'm only 49. Um, so it gave me like an extra week to think about what that means. And There is never a question in my mind about getting this vaccine, but it doesn't mean I wasn't thinking all the thoughts like this vaccine was rushed. What's going to happen in the future? Are we going to have these like crazy side effects down the road? And then of course, the actual process of getting a shot, which I literally haven't gotten a shot since I think I was in labor like almost 10 years ago. So I, uh, <laughs> I know zero people that like getting shots. I do not like getting shots. I, I don't have any kind of process except that I need to be like highly distracted and then do this sort of like labor breathing. I'd be like, oh my God, is it going? 
you know, (laughs) some kind of like breath control work. But anyway, Tim and I went and we got our first shots and, uh, there is, it is a little more of an emotional process than I thought it might be. You know, there is impending freedom on the horizon to be able to visit potentially with other people who've been vaccinated without masks, you know, in settings where we have really felt restricted. And when you think about it and you say, freedom is on the horizon, what that means to me is that we have felt like we have truly been in jail. We have been in COVID jail. We have been locked down. We have been in these quarantines. We have been all trying to do the right thing. And uh, at some points, it's been a really tough thing and sometimes the wrong thing for our own mental health. But uh, I, I will tell you, I am now on the path towards that, that elusive freedom <laughs> that we've been seeking. And, you know, what we have chosen to do with our time during this pandemic is going to be a really interesting chapter in our life books. In five years, in 10 years, we will look back and go, remember that year or so that we were sort of shut in? And we were all complaining about the fact that we had to stay in our own home, own homes and like, you know, hunker down and we were so bored and, and because we couldn't do anything anymore, now we actually did nothing. Like we had more time, but we got less done. Like there's been so many phases of this thing. So what I will say is that for the amount of time that we do have left to hunker down, to be at home do the best you can to look, be able to look ahead and say, when I'm five years in the future, I'm going to look back and say, I did something really important during that time. It doesn't have to be huge. It just has to be something slightly meaningful, you know? And for me, this time has really been about embracing, sinking in, and really loving my family, And that means nurturing my marriage, which good Lord certainly needs it. It's 25 years in almost. And uh, it's a really, I want it to be for the rest of my life. And so I've been working on that. And then maybe more importantly, I've been working on my role as mother and thinking about all the things that my daughter needs to grow into the highest, most, I don't know, complete version of herself and appreciating her and loving on her. And so today's guest is a really, really perfect person to have exactly at this time. Her name is Marissa Porges, and she wrote a book called What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold courageous, and resilient women. And I want to tell you, if you're about to tune out because you don't have girls, you have boys, she doesn't have a girl. She's got a two-year-old boy. <laughs> but her life's work has been and and is going forward. It hasn't actually been. You're going to hear about her life's work in a second. But going forward, it's about what is needed to raise the next generation of strong women leaders, and boys play a role in this too. So I'm going to do something a little different. 
I am going to read you her biography. I'm going to read you her bio, and then I'm going to share my thoughts at the end of it. (laughs) Then we'll get her on. (laughs) So I'm going to start out by just saying that Dr. Marissa Porges might be the most impressive person I've ever talked to. And here's why. Today, Dr. Porges is the eighth head of school at the Baldwin School, a 130-year-old all-girls school outside of Philadelphia that is renowned for academic excellence and preparing girls to be leaders and change makers. She is an alumna of Baldwin and personally understands the power of its approach to educating girls. It provided the foundation for her own military service and work on national security and foreign affairs. Prior to joining Baldwin, Dr. Porges was a leading counterterrorism and national security expert. Most recently, she served in the Obama White House as a senior policy advisor and White House fellow at the National Economic Council, where she oversaw the development of domestic cybersecurity and consumer protection policies. She also has served as a research fellow at Harvard Kennedy School and at the Council on Foreign Relations, where her research focused on counterterrorism. In these roles... She traveled alone throughout the Middle East and Afghanistan to conduct research, interview former members of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, meet with Syrian rebel fighters in hiding, and serve as an embedded civilian advisor at NATO military headquarters in Afghanistan. She also worked as a counterterrorism policy advisor in the U.S. Department of Treasury and as a foreign affairs advisor in the U.S. Department of Defense. In all these roles, she stood out as one of a few, if not the only woman present at any given time. And there's more, everyone. Believe it. Dr. Porges started her career on active duty in the U.S. Navy, flying jets off carriers as a naval flight officer on EA-6B Prowlers. Ten years after the Navy first allowed women to fly jets into combat, she pursued her dream of being launched off an aircraft carrier while serving her country. She earned a B.A. in geophysics from Harvard, an MSc from the London School of Economics, and a PhD in war studies from King's College London. Oh my God. Her awards include the National Committee on American Foreign Policy 21st Century Leader Award and the NATO Medal for Service in Afghanistan. She currently lives outside of Philadelphia with her family. Oh my God. So do you hear what I mean? So the night before I talked to Marissa, I was literally reading her bio to Tim. And he just looked at me and said, that's the most impressive thing I've ever heard. So she's basically Carrie from Homeland. I add minus the personal issues if you've watched Homeland. Um, I just believe that the coolest part about Dr. Marissa Porges is that she took all of this incredible badassery and decided to use it to help create the next generation of badass women. That's enough for this amazing intro. I'm sure you're dying to hear from her. Let's bring Marissa Porges on the show. Marissa, I am so happy to get you on the show. Very, very short notice. Sounds like you're on spring break. 
Yes, uh, thank you for having me, Nicole. It's great to be here. And yes, we um, happened to be on spring break this week. So it was perfect chance. I'm quiet around here. And because of all what's going on, we're not going anywhere with the family. So it's uh, it's some stay at home time, which is nice. But yes, a good good chance for us to chat. Good. You know, it's funny. I was filling my husband in last night on you and I was, I go, can you just sit down and listen to this? And I read him your whole resume and he goes, that's the most impressive thing I've ever heard. So basically she's Carrie from Homeland. Minus okay. maybe the, the, the emotional, mental, psychological issues. <laughs> but- well, we can, we'll have the emotional talk in another podcast, perhaps, right? We all have that. Um, but the funny thing is I've never seen Homeland. Oh my gosh. People have made that comparison. When Homeland came out, it was too close to it was too close for me. And I um I had just left uh the national security industry in the counterterrorism space and I missed it so much that I didn't want to watch something that like felt like I, you know, was on the the uh looking out, you know, on the wrong side of the fishbowl or whatever you would say. Yeah, so I've never seen it. Oh my gosh, it will be so fun when you do finally watch it in your life. Um actually let's start by talking a little bit about your former career. You know, Mm -hmm. today, our main goal is to talk about girls and women and, you know, how to make this world stronger and better by empowering them. But it's kind of start your story starts with your story Mm -hmm. and uh, your career is um, not usual. I haven't heard of many women getting into the field that you got into. So maybe you can share a little bit. Yeah, thank you, because I'm for going right there, because it's how I came to the messages in my book and in the talks I'm giving now and came to really both believe it from a personal perspective and from like the research-based perspective and the work I do with the girls at my school now. And yeah, I mean, I had the good fortune of having a sort of a choose your own adventure career. Um, When I was a kid, I wanted to fly jets and I had the good fortune of having parents who just let me go for it. And I'm not sure my mom thought it would work out, but my dad loved it. And before I knew it, I was flying jets for the Navy off of aircraft carriers. And then I switched careers from there and um, handled counterterrorism strategy and policy in the in the government. So did a lot of traveling in the Middle East and Afghanistan and Yemen and, and sort of a lot of war-torn places um, and, and countries where uh, conflict was part of everyday life. And I got to see and, and understand so many different perspectives through that work and research I did after that. And um, and yeah, then lo and behold, I'm now running a girls' school, right? I came back to the school that raised me and I'm now running a school for almost 600 girls uh, ages four to 18 years old. So they'll run the gamut um, until they go to college. Um, and so it's where all those stories and lessons I learned when I was out in the field, you know, doing research in Afghanistan, you know, deployed with the Navy on an aircraft carrier and things like that, that, you know, I see now what I wish I had, what served me well, what things I needed to learn a little bit later than my male peers when I was like out, you know, fighting the good fight as it were. Um, And I'm trying to give those lessons to, you know, young, young girls now. And, and you're definitely doing that. You know, it actually just hit me right now as you were speaking that, a lot of the lessons you talk about apply to you and your specific, you know, career path and, you know, kind of lessons from the field, right? But mm-hmm. the field was, took place in many countries, different cultures, parts of the world where women are regarded very differently, I think, than in mm-hmm. the United States. I don't know if that's totally accurate, but um, did you... Get, uh, gain any insights from watching how women in those cultures were treated as well, or the power of yeah. place in society that they had? 
100%. I mean, I think I sort of got a, a feel for, um, you know, truly like, you know, how it was to for women to be a second class citizen in many of the countries where um, I was working and um, or just sort of having to deal with rules that were different than those the, their male peers had to deal with. And I think the reality is that still happens here in America. We think it doesn't because it's 2021 and we see we have a female vice president and, and you know, women are sort of making great gains. And yet there's still so many um, barriers to entry and unwritten rules and sort of gaps and challenges that girls, even our young girls today, when they're out, you know, in 10 and 20 years, they're still going to face them. It takes generations to sort of change these things and reach, you know, gender equity. Um, and, you know, so I think the lessons I learned from navigating those realities and, and also then figuring out what worked best for me, right? I think there's like needs to be a personal approach here. It's not just being tougher and more resilient and figuring out how to like make the good fight of it. It's not, and, or, and it's not like, it's not about being more like men, right? It's making sense of like, what, what feels comfortable to you? How do you use a voice in a certain way that feels comfortable maybe to a young girl who's an introvert and isn't comfortable with their voice? How do you help, you know, make her okay using a voice in, in a way that feels right? Um, and there's lots of different ways that um, I sort of think that played out for me. And I didn't realize it at the time until I came to this job here at the school. And I looked back and I was like, wow, some things I did well and some things I did not do well at all. Um, and what would I have done differently? What lessons did I learn? Things like that. Do you have any like specific examples of some kind of situation when you were in your previous career, you know, flying a jet or being in some tense negotiation or whatever, where you were like, oh, I wish I would have done it differently? Oh, my gosh. So many moments. Right. I think there, there's all those. The one that um, jumps out for the purposes of, of today's conversation, um, you know, is. Well, you know, and it's it's not actually, I don't know if I would have done it differently because it worked for me, but it's a lesson that I learned. And it's when um, I was in the Navy and I was flying and, you know, I was a, uh, I was what's called a, a navigator aboard jet. So I was, for those who, this is going to date myself, I was uh, goose to maverick, right? So that's how it all came, comes about. For those who know Top Gun, that was the role. A slightly different plane, but that's the gist of it. Um, and so we were deployed and I was, you know, out um, you know, in wearing flight suits every day and sort of out doing training missions and out, you know, in uh, the Pacific on a deployment. And, you know, I can remember when um, my boss walked in. So the senior officer in, in my squadron walked in and complimented um, how my flight suit fit me. Got and it. at interesting time, right. And so, and, and candidly, you think back now, you're like, huh. Oh. And, I don't think he even really, and he was my mentor. He was someone I respected. We had a great rapport, but it was just um, so easy for him to do. We were in the midst of a deployment. It was purely a work situation. There was no, like, I'm complimenting you because we're out in a social environment and I want to make you feel good for looking nice. I don't even know what, in what realm, you know, your boss saying that to you is okay, but that stuff still happens, right? And I, and I say, it still happens to me now. I am now the CEO equivalent of a school for all girls. Um, and when I am in mixed environments with um, my peers, other heads of area schools, most of whom are men, occasionally the same equivalent moment happens, not with someone who's my boss, but someone who's my peer. Someone will compliment, when I was pregnant, someone complimented how my body looked being six months pregnant. And I was like, oh my God, how is this still happening? It's been first of all, years. Second of all, I'm much more senior and you shouldn't be saying that in a, you know, professional environment. 
And I think the lesson I learned at the time, you know, for me, I, I deal with things um, through humor um, in order to sort of make uh, it clear that something's not right, but also do it in a way that feels comfortable for me and allows me to continue navigating the professional situation and not lose sort of, uh, I feel like my own power in the moment. In some ways, that's my taking the power back is to make a joke out of it. So the person knows they were in the wrong. They get called out. But on the other hand, right, like I'm owning it as like, a, I'm going to let you off the hook this time, but don't let it happen again. And you sort of make a joke out of it. And I remember doing the same thing in, again, you know, a um, with peers just two years ago um, and thinking, okay, you know, I guess I did it sort of right. I mean, what I could, I sometimes my students ask, well, why didn't you make more of it? Why didn't you sort of, you know, file a claim, you know, do something that, um, was sort of a starker line in the sand. And I wonder sometimes, I question, like, should I, you know, should I, would I, could I have done something different? For me, it felt right. And I talked to the girls about it. Like what feels right for an individual in the moment um, can look different at different times, different points in your career. Um, but for me, again, pointing out the what was wrong, doing it with humor, doing it in a way that allows me to gain the power back in the situation and still quickly move on, like sort of those functions. Um, so that's the story that comes to mind when you say well, that. Well, you know, it's actually, I, it's a great story and we've all experienced it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm assuming your supervisor was a man. So like, oh, sorry, apologies. Another part, yes. Another part of this dynamic is that if it was a woman, would the response have been more different? You know, would you have not felt uncomfortable? Cause I don't know, I'm just saying this off the, off the cuff. Like I compliment my friends all the time and we help raise each other up. I mean, this was very like visual about your body. So I can understand that there's a weird well, line there, but yeah. What do you think? Well, so I think we compliment each other all the time, but it's perhaps it's in the environment you're in because I do the same thing with friends and maybe I do, I actually do that with, you know, people I work with or people who are my employees, but maybe it's that I don't do it in open environment. Right. So in the instance I'm talking about, my yes, male supervisor walked into an open environment. It was the squadron room. It was the briefing room. There's a guy Got standing it. around. I'm on the email. I'm on email, like on a computer doing my work. He said it so that other people heard. And the interesting thing is that story I told you about from when I was, or the anecdote I mentioned from when I was pregnant, um, the comment came from a woman. There was one other, two other female heads of school in the mixed company. And I remember standing with an, a man and a woman came up to me and said, and complimented my body, the size of my chest, because I was pregnant. And I literally, right, exactly. The, you, for those who are listening, you can't see the look on Nicole's face. Oh, it is a look of horror. That's, um, not, yes, that's not appropriate. <laughs> that's not appropriate. And and it was, but, you know, and, and I was so taken aback, but I made, a, I made a joke out of it. I called her out in a way that, again, took the power back. Um, made it clear it wasn't okay. Uh, I think the the man I was standing next to was equally aghast, but he didn't know what to do either because again, it was such a strange moment. But I do think sometimes women do the same thing. And I do think it's the context in which you're doing it. The right. history you have, the relationship you have, but also who's it in front of, right? Is it in front of other men or other, you know, people of authority? Um, right, is it right. done in a way that is sort of intended in some subtle way to disempower you? I think that's the stuff that we sometimes struggle with. I struggle with at least, I think. Well, and I'm a very compassionate person. And and so when people make a mistake, I want to help them figure that out. And what I love about your approach is that 
you are helping someone to figure out instead of just aggressively taking this line in the stand blame game. You're giving them a little bit of grace, but you know, the follow-up would be to maybe have a private conversation later and be like, mm-hmm. Hey, don't do that again with somebody else. <laughs> yeah. You know? exactly. that's a, and that's a great follow-up, right? Making it a two-step. Um, and then again, I think all these ways when we're thinking about it for the next generation are about little things we can do to give our girls the power that they deserve and that they need to be their best selves. Yes. Oh my gosh. So I wore this um, sweatshirt for you. Can you see it? I totally noticed it. It says the future is female, which is, you know, my favorite motto. So yes, love it. I'm sweating my ass off. Basically I'm about to take it off, but now I can't because it would, you know, potent, I'd be sitting here in a bra that would maybe not be appropriate. Although we are in our home setting. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Amongst the, the lesser, you know, our pandemic secrets that we can tell later after this is all over, right? Totally, totally. So one of, this is also a topic I, I thought would be fun to talk to you about. So I recently sent out a blog to my followers with, I've been thinking about this for a while, um, that covered the concept of words that polarize. Mm-hmm. And I picked three words that I use in my life, and they are feminist sober and vegan. (laughs) Right. And I kind of had like, I just was sort of free flow thinking and I just kind of put my thoughts down about each one. And, you know, I thought maybe we could talk a riff a little bit on the word feminist because I'm not sure if it's generational or that people don't, they all have different definitions of what that word means. But when somebody declares that they are a feminist, many people immediately, you know, think that they have certain traits. They're ultra aggressive. They hate men. They burn bras, you know, like mm-hmm. the whole thing. Um, and or they're afraid to say out loud that they maybe would identify themselves as a feminist. But what, do you, what are your thoughts on on that word? Oh, my goodness. This is a great topic um, because I and I, although I have to say it's a bit sad that it is a polarizing term because I actually think um, that feminist just means um, you uh, have the best in mind for the women in your life and all the girls you know and the women they'll become, right? That you want them to have the same opportunities and and uh, that the men in our lives do, um, that you hope that challenges that historically have been around because of uh, you know patriarchal systems are not those challenges that our girls face. Oh, I think it's actually um, should be a term we all embrace. Uh, and it's something that here, so I run a girls' school where, yes, we are feminists, but the dads are feminists, right? The teachers, we have male teachers, we have female teachers. No, it's something that we all say, no, we want the best for you know our sisters, our wives, our, our siblings, our moms, our daughters and our granddaughters and our nieces and any young girl you have in your life. Um, and so that is, um, I think, is a term we should all embrace uh, and do so with um, not, uh, you know, with hope and with in a fun way almost, right? Like this idea that the future is feminine. Oh, great. That's awesome. Why not? Yeah, I, you know. Hand in hand. So, yeah, I, I it shouldn't be threatening. That's the thing. I think that's what puts people off is they feel threatened um, that by saying you're a feminist, your goal is for equal rights, right? I mean, at the end of the day, like we don't even want our kids to have the same rights we have because they might've been limited. We want them to have equal rights with everybody who's Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, up to the task, whatever it is, who's equally qualified. And, um, and it's it's not about putting anyone else down. I think that's sort of where the, the, is it threatening, right? It doesn't take away from anything else. It doesn't take away from the boys in our life or the son at, you know, we were talking before we start, I have a son, right? I want him to be the biggest feminist there is, um, like my husband who empowers me and I'm grateful for it. Um, and I hope he has every opportunity for him as well. It's not, you know, not neither, you you know, we hope to have both. Um, but I think it's, uh, so, you know, it's, I think, I think we're getting there though. I hope that, uh, you know, over time it's as, as we see, um, you know, I'm, I just hope we're sort of changing the tide on, on the conversation. Well, and you certainly are because your whole goal with the Baldwin school is to raise strong girls. <laughs> yep. That is <laughs> what we raise, do. To raise leaders and change makers and, and females who are not afraid to take their rightful place in, in mm-hmm. our world, whatever that is, and not to back away. You know, and I just, I love that about you. I'm so excited to dig into your book here, actually. I kind of think we should maybe move move on to what girls need, how to raise bold, courageous, and resilient women. Oh, my God. I have to tell you something. Um, the other night, I was having trouble sleeping. I woke up. We had that terrible shooting in Boulder. It's been, like, rolling through my mind. And I've been thinking about these two girls who were in the grocery store, 12 and 13 years old, and they watched a woman be murdered in front of them. And of course, I'm thinking about the woman and her family, but these two girls who have to live with with that. And I'll tell you, I was up for hours, literally. I could not fall asleep. I was trying all these tactics. And finally, I said, I'm going to say three words. And I looked over and I saw your book. And I started saying in my head, I would actually, I was breathing. It's like a little tactic where you, Mm -hmm. you breathe in slowly. So I would say courageous in my mind through like four breaths, you know, Mm -hmm. four count. And then I would hold it and say bold. And then I would breathe out and say resilient. And I woke up the next day and that's the last thing I remember. So guess what? It helped Ah. bring me some kind of peace, comfort, and uh, allowed me to fall asleep. Isn't that cool? Oh my goodness, Nicole, I love hearing that. And, and I hope those words help, you know, everyone, not just in a time of need, but just sort of remember that these are such important, um, values. I almost want to say sort of like, you know, that they should empower all of us. Um, and you know, our girls, our families, but sort of be touch points. So yes, that sounds great. Isn't that cool? I'll have to, uh, mm-hmm. we'll have to make a little recording for people. Um, it can be their, you know, their mantra in times of need as well. So it can do both. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think about a book like this and I was like, well, Marissa probably has like, you know, four girls that she's raising, four daughters. But it turns out you have like hundreds of girls that you're raising through your school. But, you know, mm-hmm. often a book like this might come from like the mother mindset of mm-hmm. raising a daughter. And, um, and yours, maybe there, there is part of that through the work you do, but yours kind of evolved a little bit differently. Can yeah. you talk about how the idea came to you? Yeah. So the idea came actually from the students at my school. So I teach a, a class to the seniors in high school, a leadership course. And we talk over the course of the year about principles of leadership. We study sort of, you know, powerful women that they get to choose and, and dig into, well, you know, what works, what doesn't, and how do they want to be stronger leaders when they go off to college in the real world. 
And what I ended up realizing is they started asking me all these questions that weren't just focused on college because I think kids today are so more attuned with the wider world because of social media and technology and all the rest that they were really asking about like, what is life like beyond that? Like, what do I need to do? What do I need to prepare for, for the real world? And I started sharing stories from, you know, my time in Afghanistan, my time in the Navy, the first time I failed miserably at negotiating my, you know, first job salary, all those things. And those were the things that stuck with them. And I literally would have, would have students follow and be like, oh, I remember the story you told us about. And it, you know, it came up in a, you know, a student group I was in when I was, you know, with, um, you know, boys from another school or things like that. And when I started jotting down my stories and then the research I was using for my classes and things like that, it all came together. So no, it didn't come together through the lens of, you know, a mom raising girls at home. Yes, I have 600 girls at my school who I think of, of that, that's my the 600, uh, you know, no one has 600 daughter, daughters, but I come close to having uh, all the girls I raise at the school. But it, it comes more through the lens of, you know, the lessons that um, I've learned from the girls at my school and that, you know, through conversations sort of I, I pieced together and talking with them and also through my conversations with other parents. Right. So the parents here at the school often, you know, will be in conversation and things come up that they want to know about that they see their girls struggling with. And I think it's so in some ways, it's almost more of a, an objective look at things because, um, you know, it didn't come from purely just a personal slant on stuff. And then, of course, there's research and my own, you know, sort of um, lessons from other female leaders and things like that. And all, and all came together over the course of a year plus. But, yeah, that was the inspiration. So it's kind of like a reverse engineering of your life. You're like, here I am. <laughs> I am now like going to hopefully help the, these 600 girls become the best they can possibly be, you know, live true to their potential. Um, and you reverse engineered how you got there. And, and what didn't work. Exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. what do I wish I had that I didn't and what things work for me? And what does the research say, you know, the next generation needs? Because I think, you know, for those of us who are, you know, I'll say old, right? Um, because I'm, you know, just quoting 1980s films. Um, so, uh, you know, what does the next generation need? Because it's changing, right? The world is fastly changing, you know, changing and moving quickly. And so are there other things out there that our girls need? Um, and so, yeah, it, but w- it was very much a bit of a reverse engineering. So I, I like that term. Um, I, the, we're going to come back to change in a second here, but mm-hmm. I want to actually hit on the, the studies that you, you really did or researched or found about women leaders. Like mm-hmm. what are, are there like five things, you know, where you're like, boom, they all had this. So one great example is when you look at studies of, um, women who reached the, like the C-suite level of finance and the corporate world and sort of. Um, you know, places where historically men have dominated for years and years. And you look at what commonalities those women had. Over 92% of those women were competitive athletes um, in high school and or in college. Um, and then you dig into research about being competitive in a healthy way, like the healthy competitive nature where, you know, you're okay with winning and losing, but you want to do your personal best, right? And there is research that dates back to the late 19th century um, that shows, you know, being competitive is good for boys and girls, but especially helps girls bring out their best. Um, And yet it's something that right now parents shy away from often for 
you know, both boys and girls, but particularly for girls, because it sounds like you're not teaching them to be nice. It sounds like you're teaching them to be overly aggressive, to go back to that term we heard earlier. Um, but in actuality, like, you know, we all need to be competitive. You need to be competitive to go for your first job, to go for your first apartment, sort of like to navigate life. Um, and it's okay. It's okay to embrace that term and say, hey, girls, let's be, you know, a good competitor. What does that look like? Um, and so, you know, that's example of one study that when you look at the study and, and research and then my own personal experience, um, I had the good fortune of, um, I mean, it was my dad who really encouraged me to be, you know, competitive, feisty. That was the term for it back then. Feisty, go get them, right? Brush your knees off and go back into the, like, throw your skull back in when, uh, when you can. And it served me incredibly well, particularly in the tough moments when I had to dig into something slightly different when I got knocked down in the career sense um, and didn't really know what I was doing next. I can remember moments, particularly in Navy, when I didn't think I was going to cut it. Um, there was a time in flight school where I was just like, this is the toughest thing I've ever done. Um, and, you know, when push came to shove, I, I turned and I looked inside and said, all right, I'm going to dig in. I'm going to, I'm going to compete with myself. Right. Of course there's, you know, external competitive elements too, but no, I, I need to do my best. I want to do my best. And I think, um, it's why, again, the research shows and, you know, the, the stories I hear at the school, you know, would demonstrate that it's good. We need our girls to be competitive in a healthy, spirited way. I, you know, I couldn't agree more. My background is as a pro athlete. So mm -hmm. boom. But, yep. um, you know, I do think there's a, a direct correlation between strong body and strong mind, or it does, you don't have to be like, strong in the traditional sense, but just like tough body, tough mind, like, you know how to push. Um, were you, are you an athlete still? Yes. Well, uh, I, I don't know if I could. So it happens to be our mascot for the school is a bear. And I sometimes jokingly, ever since I, uh, the baby arrived, I would say if a bear was chasing me around the corner, around the corner, um, I don't know if I could uh, outrun it. So Right now, maybe not so much, but yes, in the day, you know, I was, I played sports in college and then ever since carried my, my gear around with me whenever I moved, hoping to find a pickup game and still call myself a runner and, you know, do yoga and the other things that helps, you know, lean into that physical sense that I, I really uh, enjoy. But I think you're right. That served me well. Um, and again, I think, you know, that hopefully there's some parents listening who are like, oh yeah, you know, um, I, my, my girl's competitive. She plays sports. She, you know, goes out for, um, you know, part in the play. She sort of competes, you know, when there's a writing contest at a library, those are all ways you can compete. It doesn't have to be the, you know, sports necessarily. Um, but I also think there's probably a lot of parents who, if they pause and think, remember when they let their daughter opt out because, you know, she didn't like soccer when she played it the first time and they said, ah, don't worry about it. Right. But we all know that when our sons opt out of the first sport, we typically say, OK, well, we're going to find another sport. We're going to keep going because it's just culturally the norm that we push our boys to compete more than we push our girls. Um, and so I think if we're honest with ourselves. There's too many moments where we we don't let our girls practice that feeling of being a healthy competitor um, in a way that, you know, is good for them for the rest of their lives. You know, I think sports bring you a lot of self-esteem. Um, it doesn't matter how good you are in a sport. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there are benefits from simply being in an environment where you're a teammate, where you are pushing as hard as you can, even if you're last, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. But I, this is a really kind of a hot topic in my household because I have a nine-year-old and my husband and I were world-class athletes and we've been out of that career for a decade. 
But, um, and neither of us have much competitive drive at the moment for sport anymore. Like we don't care about getting to a starting line really, but, um, our daughter has no competitive drive. And I just, I'm, we're sitting here when we first realized it, she was probably in kindergarten or something. And she was in some running race and she just started walking or didn't want to do it or was decided instead of trying as hard as she could, that she would help a friend who was sad. And the, it, it hasn't changed much to be honest. So our rule for her is you have to do a sport. We don't care what sport it is. We don't care what your level is, but you can't do like singing lessons and, you know, um, go have a million play dates unless you at least do one sport. Okay. So that's kind of the rule, but it's been, um, it's been hard, harder for my husband than me even to like wrap our heads around having a child who's so different than us. And yet, you know, cause we think, is there, does she even, is she ever gonna, is this desire to be the best? to push yourself to her best ability ever going to really surface? So I, well, for what it's worth, um, and, and though I've only heard a snippet, um, I'll say what, you know, it sounds like you're doing exactly the right thing. Um, and I'll, I'll, you know, sort of share the story of one of my students here at school who similarly was the, is the daughter of two, um, two parents who were uber competitive athletes, went to school for athletics, like competed at the national level, were ranked, um, you know, sports, you know, sportsmen and women um, in their field. Um, and their son, super competitive, you know, plays tennis and is just sort of like out there and, and sort of ranked in, you know, for his preteen self, right, doing well. And their daughter just not into it. And yet, and I share the story in the book, um, they did not let their daughter give up in the same way she had to play a sport. They changed sports over time. You know, she was swimming and then it was volleyball, but she always had to play one. And, and she, the daughter jokes. I mean, she, I remember her telling a story. What she joked, she used to come in dead last in the pool, dead last in the pool. And she was with the grade below her on the swim team, right? It was just, and yet her parents showed up and cheered her on. They kept making, you know, they dropped her off and picked her up and she still had to do it. And she shares a story that when she was in middle school and, you know, she picked up volleyball and she can remember when she finally made a team. And she can remember when they won. And she's not going to be an Olympic athlete or a competitive athlete like, or a nationally ranked athlete like her parents. She's just not her thing. But she's a singer. She's a performer. She gets on stage and perform and needs to compete for parts and to take the center of, you know, and, and to know what it's like to be your best. And, you know, she remembers those moments, right? And, and she says it, it helped her you know, now that she's on stage and, and needs to sort of perform in a different way than athletes do, but in, in a way that's as much putting yourself out there to be judged and putting yourself on the line and need to be your best. So again, I think what you're doing, it takes commitment. It takes determination from parents because, you know, it's not easy, but I think it's exactly the right thing. Ah, oh, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> this is the best therapy ever. <laughs> Good. That's the whole point. Um, <laughs> You know, I also think too, like with some kids, the social leads and the skills come. And that's kind of what I'm realizing about her maybe is, hey, your friend is doing this, go do it. And then all of a sudden she's developed skills. She doesn't even know. (laughs) Well, and that's a thing. It's a secondary skills, right? It's, It's about the teamwork. It's about the resilience. It's about being comfortable in her body. It's not about whether she's going to get a scholarship to college or be on the national squad. It's just not. Uh, not least because those things are so highly unlikely, statistically speaking. And yet, 
um, because we just don't know where life will take them, but we want to give them all the secondary skills they need to be their best selves. And so that's what you're doing. So what are these skills that girls and women need to be successful? Yeah. Well, and so this is where I think it's a combination of things that, um, that come naturally and things that by and large, a lot of women struggle with. So for example, we talked about, you know, being a healthy competitor. Um, let's talk about something that does come naturally to a lot of women. They've actually done studies that show that um, being empathetic, being, you know, being able to communicate with the other, per, uh, other person in mind and sort of build relationships that way is actually something that, well, you know, a lot of it is socialization early on, but comes naturally to girls from ages five and six. Again, a lot of it is because of how girls are taught to relate with one another in, in school and in play groups, right? It's, it's the antithesis of that competitive uh, nature we just talked about. Um, and yet being an empathetic communicator, being, you know, good at relationship building, um, being able to navigate difference um, and find common ground is so incredibly critical, no matter what industry you go in, no matter what profession uh, or personal um, goals you have, um, it is what you need to be, you know, the, the top of, uh, you know, for-profit industry, it is what you need to be um, the best community leader and the best mother, right? And it is something that we can affirmatively nurture and teach our girls, right? So if it comes naturally early on in little ways, there are actually ways that you can help your daughter practice it, or your teenage girl practice being empathetic, being a good communicator who takes others into account. And so then it becomes, I think, her superpower. So when you say the future is feminine, I actually think it's a future where these are the powers that women bring to the table. Yes, we want our boys to have them too, sure enough, but our focus is on girls. So we'll just, you know, focus on that for now. Um, but, you know, so that's a one example of something that does come naturally early on, and if we feed into it and, and build it and, and sort of really nurture it, I, I think it's just um, a skill. It becomes a formidable skill that makes them um, more more powerful later. Well, and, and at the base layer of being an empathetic communicator is being a good communicator, like being yeah. able to own and use your voice. And that's a, that's a big part of this is mm -hmm. a lot of people grow up feeling like their voice doesn't matter. It doesn't count and no one really hears it. Yeah. Well, and so now we go to the other end of the, the spectrum, right? Because I think that being able to use your voice effectively um, is something that does not come as easily to a lot of women early on. Um, and I think um, it's, you know, whether it's because women are uh, statistically speaking more likely to be interrupted that, than men in almost any environment, including elementary school. Um, from elementary school to the Supreme Court, they've done studies that show girls and women, including Supreme Court justices, are interrupted statistically speaking more than their male peers. So that's just one example of, you know, where society has sort of set the stage for girls' voices, women's voices to be heard less often. And over time, that you know, becomes a challenge and becomes harder to feel comfortable using your voice if for so long you're spoken over or spoken down to or just not heard. Um, you know, that's where the concept mansplaining comes in for those who uh, may have heard that one, right? All these things. And I felt it too. Um, and so this is where you're right. It's the other side of the coin, I think, about a skill we need to teach that doesn't, um, is a challenge. It's been a challenge for me. You know, a really good example was the vice presidential debate. And, Great example. Mm -hmm. And what Kamala constantly said, and it became a meme and a, a quote on shirts, which was, yep. 
I'm speaking, right? Yeah. Isn't that totally. what she said? <laughs> I know. And, and, and so, Whew. I mean, it was a great moment where we all saw it play out on national television in like the, the stage where, you know, of all places, right? We literally have um, the second com in command of the, the country vying for the, you know, vice presidency and, you know, still a woman's voice was being spoken over and not listened to, not heard. Um, and, you know, our, our girls feel that too. Um, you know, I, I, I know that I myself often um, still struggle with it, but I can remember there's, there was times and the gosh, the most horrifying example um, was when uh, I was working in the White House. So my last job before I came here to run the school was um, in the West Wing of the White House under the Obama administration. Um, and my first meeting with the president. So my first chance, like I'd gotten to the pinnacle of my career working for so long, and, you know, on national security issues. And I made it to the Roosevelt room, which is the conference room right across from the Oval Office. You can see the Oval Office caddy corner. You're in a room that has, you know, Nobel Peace Prize on one side and a picture of um, Teddy Roosevelt on the other. And just, you know, it was the place. And I literally had a seat at the table. I was sitting at the table with the leader of the free world talking about Al-Qaeda ISIS, you know, what to do about Iran, national security, foreign, po foreign policy, all my issues. In the course of the hour, Nicole, I didn't say a single thing. After, I didn't ask a question. I didn't answer a question. I didn't say my, um, my ideas. I didn't say my thoughts because every time I was about to, I thought, oh, I'm going to let my colleague take it. There was about 10 of us around the table. And I said, oh, he's got it. I, you know, I'll get the next one. Oh, he hasn't had his chance. And I left that room and I was like, what just happened? Literally, I've been working through that moment and I think of myself as empowered. I mean, we just, you know, we talked about my, where I've come from and what I've done. Yeah. I mean, if anyone's going to use their voice, sure as hell it would be me. And I got there and, and didn't. And I don't want that to happen to our girls because it, it can easily. Right. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of it is about, okay, well, what do we do in those moments? How do we practice in little ways from an early age so that using your voice is like, becomes like a muscle memory, kind of like when you're an athlete, right? You sort of, you, you, you do your stroke over and over again, and it becomes like second nature. That's what using your voice and speaking up should feel like to our girls. That is, uh, I want a do-over for that meeting. Can no we kidding, have a do-over? Right? <laughs> well, so I've good, had the good fortune of having my own personal do-over a couple, uh, about two months later, I forget the timeline, but um, when I saw him by, behind stage of a speech I had written for, um, you know, it, it sort of contributed for uh, something he was launching and had the good fortune of being teed up for an intro and then spent the next 15 minutes talking about Al-Qaeda, walking him to his car. He's a very fast walker and you can't see me right now, but I'm very short. So I had to sprint alongside him until we got to his waiting limo um, talking about Al-Qaeda. But that was my makeup. That was my makeup moment. But yes, um, I you know, was just fortunate that I had it. So. Wow. I mean, what a thrill too. I mean, you have, your work is just amazing to me. And I love that this, you know, what girls need is sort of the pinnacle of it. Um, so we've talked about empathy, communication, and how those two things even tie together. We've talked about how to speak up. That's what we just mentioned. Um, I think we kind of hit on like team environments a little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah. You know, how to collaborate. These are all important mm -hmm. things. Um, it's a huge. Yep. Earlier you mentioned change and yeah. that is obviously like our one constant in the world is that things are changing. So, you know, 
a rigid person is going to struggle in this world, but I think you use the word, um, adaptability mm-hmm. and even I, I swear I, I was listening to a, another interview and you talked about something I think called the adaptability quotient. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So talk a little bit about how kids like things to stay the same, even especially when they're young and maybe as they grow older, it changes, but like change is scary. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when things stay the same, there's comfort and security and blah, blah, blah. So how, what is this adaptability quotient and how do we, how do we help our girls, you know, move in this direction early? So uh, I'll take a step back to, to talk about like the research behind this idea, right? Because so we've all heard of IQ. Um, we probably have many of us heard of EQ, your emotional quotient, like your ability to handle and deal with emotions. So adaptable, the adaptability quotient, AQ, is actually something that just recently has sort of become an area of social science research. And a lot of people argue it will be the next wave of IQ, EQ, AQ is the thing that you will need because the world is ever changing, whether it's the fact that every time I turn my phone on, they've updated the apps and it all works differently and I have to figure it out again, right? That's actually being adaptable. Or the fact that you, you know, you show up for work and you have a new team to work with. Maybe you have a new boss. Maybe you have to, you know, move for the job, move, you know, switch schools, switch homes. Like those are all moments of adaptability that are constant in life. You know, you need to adapt when you, you know, get married, when you have kids, when you have a pet or to lose a pet, right? All these things are the regular ways we need to adapt. And then gosh, the past year, right? So I actually wrote the chapter on adaptability in the book um, just before the pandemic. It's it, And I wrote it after the baby was born. It was the last chapter that came together because I realized how much I needed to adapt when I was becoming a new mother. And this is where I argue that it's as it's even more critical for girls and women to think about and talk about Because one constant for women different than men is that, you know, by and large, we are going to bear the children and we are going to have the physical need to adapt and the emotional need to adapt as new mothers that yes, new dads, sure, my husband had to change a little bit about life and how he thought about things, but it fundamentally was different for me. And that's cliche. And of course, everyone told me it was going to happen when the baby was born. And it did in some ways, but not in the ways I thought. But I was still as driven as ever. I was still, you know, in charge of the school and going, you know, going off to work and and happy with that. But it did change elements of how I had to manage my day, how I had, how my, how I was perceived, how I engaged with people because I had a, you know, a newborn baby at home. So for all these reasons, adaptability is critical for the world and so important for our girls. And it's actually teachable. You can actually teach you know, even though our, our kids love, you know, things that are constant and they, you know, don't like change, there are little ways, little nudges that we can practice with them early on so that adapting is something that they're used to, right? And I'll, I'm going to give that example when you talked about, um, now it's a little different for your daughter because you're saying, oh, you know, to get her to play sports, you're sort of encouraging her to go with her friends. That's great, right? Because it was a slightly different um, sort of challenge you were facing with her. But for those for whom, you know, getting to going to sports or sort of going to the after school program or, you know, trying out for the play isn't at the big deal, the hurdle to get over. Next time, choose one where she doesn't necessarily have all her friends there, where she isn't going to the summer camp or the after school program where she walks in the door and everyone is known because it's a super safe environment. Everyone there wants your daughter to be safe and succeed. Um, but having to relate to different people 
is the early stages of adapting. It's about managing change. It's about managing discomfort. It's about bridging difference. Um, and so that's just one example of a really concrete thing we can do with girls when they're young to help them get better, better with navigating the change that comes throughout life. Um, one quick thought and then move on. I did read that you finished your book during labor and delivery. So it does make sense that you may have written the adaptability chapter after <laughs> yeah. that experience. Yeah. Okay. So that is uh, uh, like horrifying to admit, but perhaps true that um, I, I did have the epidural there, was no, you know, that way I was bringing the medicine on, um, but I made them wait because I was dying to get one chat, the last chapter into the publisher before, before the next, the next baby was born, right? That the book was the first baby and the baby was the second baby. Um, so yes, slightly horrifying, but true. And for those who know me personally, you might not be surprised, I suppose. <laughs> I love that. It's hilarious and awesome. Um, you're so tough. Okay. So, well, so I'm thinking about this adaptability, you know, the teachability, because mm -hmm. part of this too, that we'll move into here is what can we do as parents mm -hmm. or as women role models for other children? Um, one thing that hit me just with this even small example of, you know, when they're young, have them go places where they have to learn how to deal with other people. Is there a mindset approach that you can apply? And I want to just share one example of something that I I did and didn't realize it was going to be powerful until afterwards. So when my daughter was younger, I started to say, because I realized that every environment she went into was immediately better and the uh, the exit for mom and dad from the, you know how there's drop mm -hmm. off and then they like, sometimes they cry and they, you feel horrible and you're like pushing them off your body going, this is the worst thing ever. But like the exit was always better when she felt more connected to at least one person in the room, whether mm -hmm. she knew them first or not. So I started to say to her, you know what you're really good at? You're really good at making friends. And I just said it a lot. And then one day we were driving to a camp where she actually didn't know anyone. And she goes, you know what, mom, I think I'm going to be okay because I'm really good at making friends. Like she thought of the phrase. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, so I'm kind of patting myself on the back with this one, but I'm thinking like, that's a mindset thing that you can instill in a kid before they even hit a situation like this. So they have some confidence, you know, 100%. Yeah. Because you're giving her the tools she needs when she's in that new environment. And some of this is tricking ourselves, right? It's kind of like the fake it till you make it, but uh, for uh, for early elementary age kids, because that's they need it too. Um, but it works. And you know, the example that you know when it all came home for me is I was interviewing for the book, um, the daughter of one of my dearest, dearest friends, um, known her for half my life, and her her girl um, is in middle school, and they had moved uh, right before she started middle school. Very difficult time for girls to sort of switch schools, be in a new environment, and. Um, and I was talking to her about it and she's, you know, and she hit the ground running and like, you know, made friends right away and, and all this stuff. And I said, Oh, like, how did that work so well? Like, well, you know, it's not easy to enter new middle school and at the last minute when your mom changes jobs and all this stuff. And she at first pointed out that, um, you know, she had gone to a summer camp and she didn't know anyone. And, you know, it was an outdoor camp. She's not really outdoorsy. You know, that's more of her mom's thing. And, um, and, you know, but she over time, you know, she figured out how to canoe and then got along with people and, you know, whatever, it was fine because she made friends. And she remembers that and started talking about it in a way that made me realize 
that it, it proved the research out in real time, right? That she had just gotten used with the idea of being with different people, figuring out how to navigate those differences and, and you know, find common connection and sort of like over time, grow comfortable both herself and with them. And so she was able to walk into middle school a couple of years later and, and not worry about it. And the same thing that you're talking about with your daughter, whose name, by the way, I missed. What's her name? Her name's Wilder. Wilder. Awesome. So when Wilder is like, you know, going in next into middle school and if she has to switch schools or if there's a new group of kids or whatever it looks like, she will have the confidence because she's been doing it. Right. And she knows that about herself. Do you know, it just reminded me, this is like networking. This is what we as adults do for networking. It's scary to walk into that room with the coffee and the, you know, all the adults standing around awkwardly, but like one hundred percent networking. And kids, it's it's kids networking. Um, and again, if we're really talking about why women need this more, you know, as much as ever, um, women are not as good at networking. Or we're not as good at making the connections that it takes to become uh, to find mentors and sponsors in a professional context. Uh, and there's a lot of right causal factors here. There's a lot of research as to why, um, but it just means that it's something that we need to be conscious about working on, right? And it's not an inherent like you know fault of any woman. It's nothing we're doing wrong. A lot of it has to do with us devoting more time to personal and home and family than networking. Okay, but again, if we from an early age realize that we can do it and do it well and walk out of a room and know two more people. Um, I have to say, this is one of my girls asked me and my students at school, like, you know, for tricks on this one, I actually go back to being competitive. I say, hey, I make it a game. I tell myself I'm going to leave with two new contacts, with two new connections, with two new, you know, in the old school world when you're in person with two new business cards, right? That whole thing. Um, but here it is pairing, you know, a healthy competitive nature with the ability to connect and deal with, uh, you know, change and new environments. But anyway. I love that. You know, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the other concept you just brought mm -hmm. up, which is mentoring and sponsoring. Yeah. So what, um, I've actually been a sponsored athlete to me. That means you're supported by a company and you get money from them for performing well in whatever that is. It could be crossing a line or like getting the word out. Right. And mentoring to me, I'm, I'm saying this cause I want to hear yeah. what you would correct or, or edit. Um, mentoring for me is providing, being like a backbone for somebody who's, you know, been there, done that, has experience and that someone can lean on when they aren't quite sure of their next steps. Mm -hmm. So what mm -hmm. do you think about my, de my, my definition? Oh, I think those were, um, those were great. It was very interesting to hear your definition of sponsorship through the context of a professional athlete, because they'll make a tweak for sort of like the rest of us who are not professional athletes in any way, shape or form. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, you know, a mentor is somebody who advises you, right? The backbone is a great way to describe it. Someone who you can turn to when you need help, someone who gives you advice, helps you navigate next steps. Um, a sponsor in, you know, not just professional, not just business context, but sort of any, you know, professional or personal context and is someone who creates opportunities for you, right? And so someone who pulls you, not just, you know, takes the, the gives you projects, pulls you forward, brings you, you know, job opportunities, pulls you onto a project or a team, gives you chances that you would not have otherwise. And they're sponsoring you. So in the same way that um, you're, uh, you are being sponsored to, um, you know, financially speaking, you know, that was putting you forward in a way, um, very particular for the industry you were in. 
Um, but for a lot of us, right, sponsorship is that per uh, sponsor is that person at work or you know in other places who says, "Hey, I have a job that would be great for you, or an opportunity to get involved, and I'm going to make it help you make it happen." And that's a subtle difference, and it's something that, uh, by and large, comes is. I'll just put it this way: most women don't have as many sponsors as men. And, you know, when it comes and it, it is, um, it is a hindrance. It's a challenge. It's something that like holds a lot of women back. I can speak on, you know, for me personally, I, uh, over time didn't, um, haven't had as many sponsors and, and mentors even as I wish I had. And, um, and you know, it's, it makes things a little bit harder when they're already hard enough. We need to create a women's sponsor network. Yes. Yep. Oh my Love gosh. It. You probably already started it. Um, well, let's do this as we're, what an awesome conversation. I mean, I want to keep going, but at some point you do need to move on to continue running the Baldwin school <laughs> and do the things that you need to do during break here to get yourself organized. Um, so let's do, let's talk about a few more tactics that people mm -hmm. can employ because one of the, the points is that we can start our girls young, right? Yep. How young? do we start with these tactics? No, oh, I mean, I think this is at whatever, as young as you can go, right? I mean, this is, but it's, it's in reasonable age appropriate ways. It's not all the time. It's not, you know, as a, you know, as a parent of an 18 month old who's running around home and I'm mostly trying to keep him from hurting himself, you know, this isn't a high bar of all the time or perfection. Right. But it's being conscious about little things and little ways, tactical ways, I say, right, that we can help encourage key skills that our girls need and will need over time. Right. So let's take an example. We want them to be empathetic. We want them to understand what it means to be a good uh, understanding other people's perspectives, to be able to navigate and communicate, make those connections with other people by taking them into account. An easy way that it can be done at any age is to read fiction. Studies show that reading fiction helps the reader understand the other person, particularly when the novel or the story or the book is, you know, similar enough to your daughter that she can see herself a little bit. So it's about a girl of the same age, but there's a difference. She could have a different, be of a different race, have a different background, have different ethnicity, live at a different time period in time. And then it's just about, well, what do you talk about when you're reading the book? You say, oh, well, what do you think? What do you think she's thinking? What do you think would be helpful, right? What do you, you know, what do you imagine she's feeling right now? Again, a, a simple way. The next time you're picking up a book at the library, just think, oh, let's just pick up a fiction that has my girl at the center of it, but something, you know, a challenge that she can see herself in, um, you know, for uh, helping her raise her voice, right? So when you're, your daughter is in elementary school, so Wilder is nine years old, you, you can start then, you can start from ages five and six. It's about helping them get used to using their voice. A great um, example I'll take from one of my girls at school is um, who is a very, very effective at using her voice in a way that was so impressive to me because she did it in the moment that most women can't use her voice. She was being sexually harassed. One of the teenagers at my school, um, junior in high school was walking with her friend, um, you know, at, on a different campus, um, not at our school, at a different school. And they were leaving a student you know, student group, you know, and they were, it was uh, late in the afternoon and summer day. So not dark out, sort of they were heading, they, one of their moms was picking them up and they get started getting harassed by two workmen on the campus. 
they were being called after about their bodies, about what they were wearing, about what the men wanted to do with them behind closed doors. And it's just horrifying. Um, I heard about it after the fact and was so proud that, of course, the first thing they did was run, um, you know, to the waiting car across campus because they were afraid. They were, you know, God, you know, this is just the moment we all we don't want to happen to our girls. We definitely don't want to happen to our teenage girls who um, might not know how to protect themselves. But it's what happened next that I was so, so proud of. Um, that as soon as they calmed down and collected themselves, they took out their smartphones and the, they wrote a note to the middle-aged white man who was in charge and said, dear sir, we'd like to report an incident that happened on your campus. They didn't know him. They sort of knew him from afar. He's a leader in the community and they sort of were aware of who he was. They detailed exactly what happened and then they ended it by saying, if you don't have sexual harassment training for your employees, we suggest you start. If you do have that training, perhaps it's time for a refresher. We'd welcome the chance to speak with you about it. Within 36 hours, they were in his office with the head of security and the director of human relations talking about what happened. And one of their parents hadn't even heard about it yet. And this is something that, you know, most, it doesn't happen for, you know, adult women, right? Much less 16 year old girls who sort of, uh, you know, are faced with such traumatic moment. Um, and when I talked with them about, you know, what happened, how they, managed it so well, so how they use their voice, even in such a distressing moment. One of the girls said, ah, you know, it's just something that I've gotten used to doing. And she remembers when she was 10 years old and she shared, yeah. And I started picking, I was like, well, what, how, when did you practice? Sort of like, how did you get so good at that? And she said, well, I can remember the first time. When I was 10, my dad used to make me call for pizza. Not my twin brother, not my mom, but me. And I hated it. You know, who wants to call for pizza every time they had their family, you know, take out pizza, take out night. Of course, now we just do it on our smartphones. It's a reason to pick up the phone and just call. Um, but and she had to every time he coached her. He made her do it. And it was the thing. She ordered the food for the family. And she said she still doesn't like doing it. Why does she want to? She shouldn't have to do it, but she does it. And she grew comfortable. And there was a couple other ways over time. But again, find safe moments to help your girls practice using their voice. And it can be done from when they're seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. Um, and they remember it. You know, it's like give them a leadership role in your household with mm -hmm. something they can control that might be a little uncomfortable. Exactly. Right. Because it's a safe place. And it doesn't matter if they screw it up. Right. You get the wrong toppings on the pizza or the order doesn't go through. Not a big deal right? That's a perfect moment for them to practice. Oh, I love that. Great examples. Um, for maybe separate messages or maybe the same for women and men who are listening, what is one key thing we can do to help empower the young girls in our lives? One behavior or whatever it is. Yeah, I think it's what we were just talking about. It's helping them practice using their voice, finding small moments, whether it's around your dining room table and you see your daughter not speaking up or your wife not speaking up as much um, as, as the boys at the table or the men at the table, um, or whether it's your team at work and you're in a mixed group, uh, mixed uh, gender team and you realize the women aren't speaking up as much as the men, finding moments in that safe context of making sure the women in your life are being heard. It's not all the time. It's not an everyday thing, but helping the women in your life and the girls that you love and the girls that you care for practice using their voice um, can be done at any time, at any age, 
and it doesn't have to be perfect. It just, you know, has to be something we keep in mind. That's a key. Doesn't have to be perfect. Yep. Just keep it in mind. Well, okay. So as we wrap up here, how can people find you and your book? What, what's our next call to action here? Oh my goodness. Well, please pick up my book, um, What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. It is out on Amazon, um, indie bookstores, wherever you pick up your books. Um, please go grab a copy and then stay in touch. Um, you can find me on my website, whatgirlsneed.com. And, um, and on the website, there's research um, and references for parents, for educators, and for girls. There's actually reading lists and things like that for young girls. Um, and also my email. So for those who want to follow up and have more to, to say or more questions in mind, feel free to shoot me an email. Love hearing from you. Awesome. All of this will be in the show notes as well. Um, your son is in an enviable place. <laughs> he is going to be, he is going to know what girls need. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's going to be a supporter. I think I'm going to get him a feminist onesie. Oh my goodness. Love it. <laughs> I don't know why hilarious. I don't have one already. That's we got to get one yes. of those. <laughs> yes, totally. Um, well, at the moment we're just trying to, I think, uh, you know, just try to keep him alive. Right. Is yeah, exactly. Day where, yep. 10 fingers, 10 toes. And he goes to bed at night. Happy. We're, we're fine. But yes, I, I think, and this is why for our boys, you know, those with boys listening, um, this is about boys too right? It's about making them supportive of the girls in their lives. Yes. Well, I'm going to wrap then with the final question I ask everyone who comes on the show, which is if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? I think it's keeping in mind that, uh, even in 2021, um, our girls, our women in our lives have challenges that, um, will still be there for years to come and that we can all help make um, their, make sure the future is female, um, like your shirt says, Nicole, but um, doing little things every day to help them out. So it's, uh, it's good to keep in mind for women and men everywhere. Absolutely. And the, the key here is that the little things add up. You can't, yep. you can't change the big concept all at once. It's the little things that are going to get us there. Exactly. The little things make a huge difference. So, so happy to have your listeners part of that journey. Thank you so much for your time today. You are such a brilliant and amazing woman, and I'm so happy that you are on our planet. Thank you, Nicole. It was so (laughs) much fun to be here. All right, you guys, what a great, great conversation. This is going to be one that you're going to want to bookmark probably come back to and listen to different parts of it at different times when you need it. It's here for you. I'm here for you. Dr. Marissa Borges is here for you. Um, You are also going to want to buy her book. So check it out. What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. If you're ever having trouble falling asleep, use my method. Breathe in on courageous. Count for seven. Hold your breath for four while saying the word bold and breathe out on resilient. On an eight count, you will fall asleep. The last word in your mind will be resilient. My gosh, can't think of a better way to fall asleep these days. We need it. We need her. We need more women like her. And we need to support what she's doing because by doing that, we will have more women like her. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. You know, I just want to say thank you. That's it. 
You're amazing. I've received the most amazing responses from you over the past few weeks as I've had some fairly emotional episodes that I've put out. And I want you to know that they really touch me. It helps me feel less alone. And uh, you know what? That's why we're all here. To feel less alone, we are connected, even in this sometimes unexplainable world. All right, everybody, that's it for today. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you tomorrow, or maybe next week. <laughs> <laughs>